nicotine is addictive, absolutely. But really, I want to just put this into perspective a little bit. So the doctors who are recommending and prescribing e-cigarettes, they're doing so because the level of addiction and the level of impact from nicotine is similar to, say, being addicted to caffeine. That's the level of risk that we're talking about. And so that's a good comparison. Now, again, we're talking about smokers switching from cigarettes to other forms of nicotine, not for kids or teenagers taking up vaping. That's a different conversation. What is your view on smoking? Do you remember the days when we could smoke indoors, restaurants, and even hospitals? When smoking was a status symbol of being cool. Our mindsets to what is acceptable around smoking has shifted. And what are your thoughts currently on a smoke-free nation. Smoking remains to be the leading preventable cause of illness and premature death, and it's responsible for more than 8 million deaths a year globally. I had a really interesting conversation with Dr. Kosa, who is an epidemiologist in public health. We discuss the future of tobacco and what that holds, the benefits and also the disadvantages of e-cigarettes, vaping, and smoking. It's a really interesting one and one that I really hope you enjoy. This episode of the Be Well podcast is sponsored by the trusted and highly concentrated omega-3 brand, Minami. Did you know that it's important to consider an omega-3 supplement if you do not consume one to two portions of oily fish a week? Omega-3s contribute to a normal brain function, healthy heart and vision. Lucky for you, Minami is a brand that I wholeheartedly recommend for the family as they stand out from the rest. They are the omega-3 experts. Minami is one of the highest concentrated and pure omega-3s available on the market and you get more omega-3 nutrition per soft gel, which means fewer capsules to swallow. They have a high concentration of 90 to 95% of omega-3 per capsule. They are free from solvents and fillers and they have a low environmental impact. Sourcing sustainable fish species from unpolluted water of the South Pacific. I am a huge believer in the importance of omega-3 for our health. You can find the Manami products at the Revital stores across the country and online at www.revital.co.uk and use the code SAM15, you can get 15% off in-store and online. Thank you, Minami, for providing this wonderful discount to our listeners. Dr. Kosa works in public health and epidemiology, working on preventing risk factors for chronic disease, including diet, smoking, alcohol, exercise, and mental health. New Zealand currently plans to outlaw tobacco for anyone born post-2008, and the UK are going to prescribe e-cigarettes to stop smoking. Today, we are going to explore what a smoke-free nation might look like. Dr. Kotha, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you for coming here in person today. How are you? Hello again, Sarah. Really well, thank you. Lovely to be here with you today. I'm so pleased that we can do this in person because when I put this on my Instagram, when I heard the headline around New Zealand making this ban for anyone born post-2008, I got a really interesting influx of 
different opinions from my listeners. So you were one of them saying we should do a podcast on this. So I'm really glad that you said that and that we are. So to kind of give a few stats and just to see where we currently are, like what is happening around the world currently regarding smoking and tobacco use in the moment? So, yeah, you're quite right. There is very much mixed feelings about this. A lot of misinformation out there. So I hope we can clarify some of it today. So if we look around the world, there are still 1 billion people who use cigarettes and use tobacco. We know that one in two people who use tobacco will die from a tobacco-related condition. And there's nothing else in our world right now in terms of public health that can affect our health as much as tobacco. Eight million deaths a year around the world. In addition to those direct deaths, there are more than one million deaths from secondhand smoke. So family members of people who smoke and are in the same household also suffer from that. And we know that vast majority, 60% of smokers actually want to stop smoking. And so we really need to give them the options to allow them to do that. Yeah, that's really interesting. You always hear of some people, sadly, that that die from lung cancer. And sometimes that can also be related to secondhand smoke, I guess. There's some people you think you live such healthy lives and then due to the secondhand causes such as tobacco. I think it is a really important topic to discuss here. So when we're looking at countries that have drastically reduced or eliminated smoking, who are the ones that are leading in this field at the moment? There's a large variety of policy and we see countries like Sweden and Norway that have almost eliminated smoking. So in Sweden, people have been using snus and nicotine pouches, which don't contain tobacco, just nicotine. And there, the prevalence of smoking is less than 5% now. So it's almost been eliminated. And then also, because it's been around for a while, the snus and pouches, when we look at deaths from cancer and deaths from anything related to smoking, it's half of that of the rest of the European Union. So it's already having a major impact on their health. Norway, the rates are less than 1% now in young women, and so they will quickly follow the path of Sweden. In Japan, there's a different pattern. So a lot of people in Japan use heat-not-burn cigarettes, also called ICOS. So these are cigarettes. They do contain tobacco, but you don't light them up. There's a device that heats up the cigarette and it emits a lot less of the harmful substances. And so in Japan, cigarette sales have dropped by a third over the last five years because of that. And so we're we're, uh, still waiting to see the health impact of that. Other countries, you touched on New Zealand and the UK. They've both taken a stance to use safer ways of delivering nicotine to help people to stop smoking. So When we look at cigarettes, for example, they contain tar and many substances which are harmful, but actually it's the nicotine in the cigarettes that people get addicted to and it keeps them coming back to pick up a new pack of cigarettes every day. So the UK and New Zealand and some other countries are looking at how they can deliver nicotine in a way that's safe without the harmful effects of the tar and the rest of the components of tobacco. So in the UK, as you mentioned, E-cigarettes have been available for a long time direct to the the public to buy, but now they'll be available 
for GPs and other doctors to prescribe. And the reason is that when we look at inequalities in health, so there's a very large difference, around 12 years difference in life expectancy between people, say, in Glasgow and people in Cornwall. And a large factor for that is higher uh, rates of smoking in Glasgow and other parts of the country. And so the NHS are looking at prescribing e-cigarettes as a way of tackling those differences in health inequalities. In New Zealand, as you said, for anyone born um, after the year 2008, there will be a total lifetime ban of being able to buy cigarettes. I think we should probably discuss that a little bit more, the, the pros and cons of that. The US have a really kind of mixed bag of policy some states have banned e-cigarettes. There's been a regulation passed to have lower levels of nicotine in cigarettes. But if we think about it, the harm is not from the nicotine. The harm is from the rest of the cigarette mm. components. And so it's not really tackling the problem head on. It's not going to make people smoke less cigarettes by lowering the nicotine. So many questions here. I definitely want to divulge more into the nicotine and tobacco and the addiction side of things. But just before we do, a couple of points that I picked up on on what you said. You mentioned about the health inequalities and obviously reducing tobacco would be helping increase our health overall. But a really interesting question here is, if I see in diet, so let me explain this in diet terms, if somebody cuts out one thing, they are more likely to increase another behaviour. It could be a healthy behaviour. Following a smoking ban, if people take out cigarettes, could they easily swap that for another addictive substance or behavior? So maybe something like smoking or something else that still might be detrimental. Is this something that we're worried about seeing an increase of or do we feel quite positive that actually that won't happen? Yeah, so I have mixed feelings about smoking bans, banning anything totally. The reason is that when we've had bans, so for example, alcohol during prohibition, and there have been smoking bans in other countries, for example, in South Africa during the lockdown, people actually don't stop using those products. They start using unregulated black market products. And that for me is a concern. And so I would rather provide safer forms of products with nicotine to allow people to stop smoking rather than drive people to the black market. Yeah, I think that's a really important part to, to state because you can see that anytime you put a ban on something, there is a rise in the black market. And it is hard because it's been around for, for centuries now, smoking. So it's quite hard to take that away. And also it's a freedom of choice. And that's another conversation that is a wider conversation and maybe just good to touch upon it this could be a whole podcast entirely but just touch upon you know around the dictatorship and freedom of choice because a lot of people I can imagine can get very upset knowing that as of next year in New Zealand that's it somebody born post-2008 can't have that choice and if you were born in 2007 you would have that choice so you know what's your views as a doctor as an epidemiologist as a public health doctor on on the wider conversation around the freedom of choice on this. There's a really lovely piece of work by a colleague called Professor David Nutt, who you should definitely get onto the podcast. He looked at the health risks of all of the substances that are available to us, but he looked at health costs, but also societal costs, how it impacts your job, your family. So really, you know, how does it impact your life? Alcohol and tobacco 
were amongst the most harmful of products compared with some of the others. So he used to be drug czar, so he was looking at a wide variety of substances. And so we really do need to look at both alcohol and tobacco mm. as very harmful products. Now, for people who have never used these substances or used tobacco, I think it's reasonable for them to not have access to those or for them to be illegal mm. in the same way that other drugs would be. So from a scientific perspective, that's the correct thing to do. If we look at how this would actually work in society and, and in real life, it's likely they would still get these products from the black market. And so it can be part of the solution, but it can't be the only solution. There is an ethical and moral conversation to be had around that, for sure. And I think it does need a bit more discussion before it's widely adopted. And maybe we can use New Zealand as a test case to see how effective that is. But the problem is it's very difficult to monitor um, black market use of tobacco and anything else. That's the thing, I guess, in any kind of healthcare provider and doctor or anybody working to, to want to improve health, that the worry side is that black market can also cause some very harmful behaviours and, and dangerous behaviours. So it is really important to be aware of that. When we're going on to ways to quit smoking, so speaking from personal experience, I grew up with a father who smoked heavily. And it was always, I think, kept from me that he smoked for a very long time because he was very ashamed to not want to pass that that behavior on to me. And it wasn't until recently that I thought my father gave up when he was about 40. So I was about 10. He actually gave up when he was nearly 60. And he tried so many ways to try and give up smoking. And I think this is for anyone who's listening or for anyone who's got a parent or a partner, they can see that it can be so difficult to give up smoking. And it's not as easy as many people might think, because it is a true addiction. Now, you mentioned earlier that the UK are looking to prescribe e-cigarettes, which is a really kind of interesting conversation that I want to come on to more. But, you know, what are the ways for people to give up smoking that maybe it isn't an e-cigarette traditional ways? Because I always remember my father having patches. And for him, I think what happened for him was a community setting where everyone went to talk about giving up smoking and their struggles and having more of a community support actually really helped him. But I'd love to explore ways of currently, you know, what are looking to be the most kind of efficient ways for people to give up smoking. Yeah, I think most people have been affected by smoking in their lives by somebody they know, friend, family. And actually, it's very difficult for people to give up smoking. And it is an addiction. And we should definitely be offering as much help as possible, rather than pointing the finger or ostracizing people who smoke. You mentioned the patch and the traditional way for people to stop smoking was that they would go to their GP, GP would refer them to a smoking cessation clinic. Obviously, there'd be a bit of a waiting time. They'd be either prescribed medicines, so varenicline or bupropione, or given nicotine patches and gum. Now we've got products available direct to smokers. So there are behavioral approaches, NLP, which is neuro-linguistic programming. Hypnosis works for some people. There are apps such as Quit Genius and others that use a behavioral approach. And then there are nicotine alternatives, so patches, gums, e-cigarettes, and in some countries, some oral nicotine products like pouches. How successful are they for helping people to stop smoking? So quite often there's a 
mixed reporting. So to really say somebody has given up smoking, we need to follow them up for a whole year. And if by the end of the year they haven't gone back to smoking, we can say they have quit. So the most evidence, the highest number of studies are for the prescription drugs and for the NRT patches. And the success rate is around 20% to 25%. So one in five people who actually are prescribed those, who get to the clinic and are prescribed those, would still be smoke-free after a year. But then you have to consider that a lot of people would want to give up smoking, but maybe are hesitant to get to the GP. And then between the time they're referred from the GP to the clinic, um, they would drop out. So actually, the real success rate for that method is a lot lower than one in five because a lot of people would drop out before they even get to the clinic or pick up their prescription from the pharmacy. Some of the behavioral ones, like the NLP hypnosis, they are less successful. It's around 13%, so that's around one in eight. Um, some apps like Quit Genius, their results are a bit better, so they have a 30% quit rate, but I don't think they have long enough follow-up yet to see if that holds up at one year. There are lots of other apps available as well. And then we have e-cigarettes, which have a similar success rate as the clinics, around 20%, one in five. But the difference is that you don't have to go to the GP and to the clinic, and you can just walk in and buy that anytime you like. So with smokers, it's quite important for them to be able to access the support when they feel motivated to quit. And with e-cigarettes, they can access that immediately rather than having to wait. So if we take all of that into account, then at the moment, e-cigarettes are the more convenient way and successful way for people to give up smoking. So that's really interesting. We've explored lots of different alternatives. I do think actually, I remember my father tried hypnosis and it wasn't that helpful for him, but I guess it's really important to see the variety that is on offer. But you did mention e-cigarettes and that is something that is becoming much more accepting in the last couple of years. A lot of people are smoking them socially at dinner parties or out on the streets or, you know, some restaurants allow them in, some don't, but it is becoming more socially acceptable e-cigarettes. But a big question I think we all have is that we're still not really aware of if there is any negative benefits with e-cigarettes. And I know that some people I've I've spoke to, it does actually make them cough when they have a lot of e-cigarettes or or too much. Is there any negative effects with e-cigarettes? Because you mentioned some of the pros and cons of the the other things. But I think what we're really interested in now is this is what we're going to be prescribing to help people. Is there any damage that comes with e-cigarettes? So there is a lot of misinformation about e-cigarettes and any of these products that people are using to stop smoking. Up to three quarters of people actually think that it's the nicotine that is harmful and causes cancer. And many people think that cigarettes are safer than e-cigarettes. And so we actually did a systematic review. So we looked at every single study published since 2015, looking at e-cigarettes and health outcomes such as heart disease, cancer, um, death, uh, mental health, asthma, um, bronchitis, other respiratory diseases. So we looked at over 1,300 studies 
they'd modeled some data. They were just looking at the smoke that comes out. So they weren't really measuring the health impact. There were only 37 studies we found that measured the health impact directly in the five years. And there were no harms for cardiovascular disease or respiratory disease or mental health problems. We also looked at deaths and cancers. And there's no plausible mechanism whereby nicotine could actually cause either cancer or death. And actually, it hasn't been studied at all. There were no studies looking at that for that reason. We found zero harms from using e-cigarettes. And we actually found some benefits from people who were smoking and then switched to e-cigarettes. So people who had hypertension, the control of their blood pressure, for example, was improved after switching to e-cigarettes. And now I do want to stress that we're talking about smokers who have stopped smoking as a tool to help people to stop smoking rather than product that people should use for fun. Um, you asked about coughing, and there are short-term physiological effects, as you would get, say, with caffeine. So you do get higher heart rate, respiratory rate, blood pressure in the short term, and as you would for any other stimulants like caffeine, but that does not go on to cause any disease or problems with the lungs. And so I don't know if cough is a common phenomenon for e-cigarette users. If it is, it, it may be a physical phenomenon or a short-term physiological phenomenon, but it certainly doesn't go on to lead to any serious lung problems. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think some of us look at e-cigarettes and think, are we still causing more harm? And I guess in the context versus smoking, we're not, but it also can create an addictive behavior. And so that's something I think that we need to be aware of, that within our actual physical health and physiology, it's not causing us harm, but it is actually causing an addictive behavior because the nicotine is addictive. And I think that's something that's really important to get across. But there are many different types of e-cigarettes. And I think this is where I've definitely become confused because just from my peers and people that I know, some people say, and I am going to mention the names here because, you know, there's no affiliation to anything of what we're saying. But a lot of people say a jewel is the worst e-cigarette you could possibly buy. It's full of so much. I can't remember what they said, but I've just been scared from hearing different e-cigarettes. And this e-cigarette is better because it's got less of exon or it's got less nicotine in. So I think a really important question here is, do we need to be aware of the types of e-cigarettes and vapes we are buying? And is there a large variety of nicotine in each or are they all quite similar? The answer to your question depends which country we're talking about. So in the UK, the amount of nicotine in e-cigarettes is heavily regulated. In the US, less so. And so there's more potential for harm and abuse in the US than uh, in the UK. A normal cigarette would have around 12 milligrams of nicotine. In a well-regulated e-cigarette, such as a Juul, it would, say if we have 15 puffs from that, it would have between, say, 1 and 15 milligrams of nicotine. So very similar. So either the same amount as a cigarette or less than a cigarette. But if we're looking at unregulated markets, there may be higher levels of nicotine. So in the UK, there's no real difference in the safety profile of different brands of e-cigarettes. 
and Jewel is just as safe as any of the others. Jewel did get a bad name because of some other areas of their business model around marketing and who they were marketing the products to. But I think that's a separate conversation. Cigars, for example, people regard as safe, but actually a cigar has almost two thirds of the harm of a cigarette and the same nicotine levels as well. That is really interesting because I think you're told with cigars to not inhale them. So you're not thinking you're getting the detriments of an intake of an influx of nicotine, but actually you're saying that we are. So that's something to, I guess, really be aware of as well. And the other thing that I found really interesting. So the other thing that I find really interesting, and maybe this is a myth that you can dispel, I'm not sure if it's genetics that people can get more addicted to smoking, but I've mentioned my father who smoked and my grandmother also smoked. And she was actually told by her GP to start smoking. And it's because she had anxiety and she was quite stressed. And I think she was going through a divorce at the time. And so she was told by her GP to start smoking. Now, this is, I think, before, well, hopefully before, they were aware of the damaging effects that nicotine and tobacco was giving us. However, we now know that the deep breathing that you get from inhaling a cigarette is actually the benefits of reducing your anxiety. And so I think a lot of people, when they're giving up smoking, are starting to realize the interaction between the deep breathing, taking some time to go and have away from stress situation that can help with reducing stress and anxiety. Is vaping, I guess, the reason why some people might find this more beneficial when they are trying to stop because they're still interacting in that behavior? Interesting story. <laughs> so yes, doctors did use to prescribe cigarettes or recommend cigarettes for stress relief. And doctors themselves used to have the highest smoking rates of anyone in society. But actually, once the harms from smoking became apparent, it was doctors who first stopped smoking and then started advising their patients to stop smoking as well. So I hope there are no doctors now who <laughs> recommend taking up smoking for stress relief. So the relationship between using cigarettes, uh, nicotine and anxiety and mental health, it's a very complex one and we don't fully understand it. It's a kind of bi-directional relationship. And so people do find stress relief from smoking and nicotine. But people with serious mental health symptoms can sometimes find that they deteriorate if they stop smoking suddenly. And so that is a kind of special scenario where we have to look differently at how we get people to stop smoking and making sure that it's supported in the right way. People smoke for very different reasons. Some are truly physiologically addicted to the nicotine, not everyone. Some people find the stress release from being able to get away from their workplace, for example, for half an hour or 10 minutes for a cigarette break. Some people need something in their hands for fidgety reasons, some people in their mouth. So there are many different reasons why people take up smoking. And then when we're trying to support them to give up smoking, we need to know what that reason is so that we can give them the best advice, be it a nicotine pouch, be it an e-cigarette, be it behavioral support. NLP. So that's really part of the support that they should receive. 
Yeah, it is interesting because back in the modeling world, when I was fully in it, I do always remember seeing people being able to get breaks because they were going out for smoking, but I could never go out and say, I'm just going to take five minutes of deep breaths outside because that just wasn't allowed. But if you were a smoker, it was actually acknowledged as an advantage that, well, you can go out and have a cigarette because that's what you need to do. Whereas you weren't ever acknowledged of, I just need to go out and have five minutes. Reminds me of a funny sketch in Friends, the series where I think it's Rachel takes up smoking just so that she can, all the important conversations at work were taking place at the cigarette break. So she took up smoking just to be part of the conversation and she didn't know how to smoke and she didn't like it. <laughs> so yeah, it used to be part of the culture really, but I, I think that's really changed. No, it really has. And I guess now and many people will relate to this, when I grew up, you would go to a club, you would go to a restaurant, and you would come back smelling of smoke. And now, if you go to somewhere in a European country where you can still smoke inside, I am quite cross when I come back and I'm like, my hair smells of smoke, my clothes smell of smoke. So it's much less socially acceptable. And I think we're much more aware now of the smoking environment that we're in. And taking it back to my father's time, he remembers smoking in hospital. So from him smoking in hospital to then smoking in pubs and bars and restaurants to now not smoking at all, we really have made actually a large change, haven't we? Yeah, definitely. I remember when the smoking ban in public places came about, I think, when was it around 2005 maybe? I was involved in some of that work. And it really, literally within a year, went from being really quite trendy and fashionable to being almost a taboo. You know, if you were the person standing outside the pub smoking, mm. it was not cool. It's no longer cool. And I think that was a major shift in people's really perception of smoking as being cool. And I guess that puts us on to an interesting debate, really, doesn't it? Because I, I remember when that smoking ban came in and there was a lot of uproar about it and people were very angry about not being able to smoke inside. And it did take a while to change that mindset. But now we're so accepting of that mindset. And now we are shocked by going to another country where you can smoke inside. Whenever you're in Paris and I leave a restaurant in Paris, you know, that is the culture, it's the Parisian way of having a glass of wine and having a cigarette and sitting there and watching the world go by. Culturally, we're very different here in England. And so when we are talking about this smoke-free potential future, even though it sounds quite drastic at the moment, I guess that's a really good analogy to look at and say, well, actually, we were quite shocked when we bought in the smoking ban. And now, actually, if we do bring this in, will we become quite accustomed to it quite quickly? Because we are as humans, we hate change. We absolutely hate change, but we do adapt, as we saw from COVID. So I guess that is also a really interesting viewpoint to look at it. We are going to start bringing these regulations in such as New Zealand, maybe in the potential future. I completely agree. Uh, I think if you've never smoked and never been exposed to it, I'm sure it, it must feel like a very alien concept to put, use something, put something in your mouth that gives you a one in two chance of dying from it. I mean, that's that's taking a very kind of cold clinical look at the effect of smoking. But yeah, countries like Sweden and Norway have almost eliminated smoking, and I hope that the UK would as well in the near future. And, and it's not a, a linear trajectory as such. Things can change quite quickly. So looking more towards the future and the incorporation of e-cigarettes in our society and being prescribed by doctors, which some people might feel quite shocked to hear, but it is the way that it's going because it does have 
within our physiology and our health a better outcome because it doesn't have the tobacco in it. But there is still a really important discussion around the nicotine because that is the addictive substance. So it might not be affecting our lungs in the way that tobacco does and tar, but it is still addictive. And I think this is really important because addiction means that we need constant use of one particular substance. So when we're starting to use e-cigarettes and adopt them more within our lives and swap them for smoking... What's the long-term view of this? Is it that we're meant to reduce down the nicotine and stop using e-cigarettes like we do with patches? So we actually start coming off, but we're not going dry turkey. Because I think that's a really important conversation to have around the adoption of bringing these in. But what's the long-term view of how these are going to be used? Nicotine is addictive, absolutely. But really, I want to just put this into perspective a little bit. So doctors who are e-cigarettes, they're doing so because the level of addiction and the level of impact from nicotine is similar to, say, being addicted to caffeine. That's the level of risk that we're talking about. And so that's a good comparison. Now, again, we're talking about smokers switching from cigarettes to other forms of nicotine, not for kids or teenagers taking up vaping. That's a different conversation. But for smokers who are moving on to different types of nicotine, so e-cigarettes or pouches, we're still following that up to see what the pattern is. Do they stay on these forever for the rest of their lives or do they stop using these eventually? So do they wean themselves off? And the longest data, duration of data we have is from Sweden and people using snus to stop smoking. And the pattern usually is that they use cigarettes, then they start introducing snus or pouches, then they wean down how many cigarettes they smoke, eventually stop smoking, just use the pouches. I forget the exact number. A large proportion actually stop using the pouches and snus as well. So they wean themselves off the nicotine. Not everyone, but a majority. The kind of final question is then, you know, what does the future of smoking look like? What's next? You know, as an epidemiologist, if someone studies in this area, you know, what is the future of all of this? Well, wouldn't it be great if we could just <laughs> stop it immediately? <laughs> so I think there will be new products coming on. I don't think e-cigarettes will be where it stops at because there are many, I think, design issues. And I think the future will have different types of product that only contain nicotine and water. And some are already available, inhalers and nasal sprays. There aren't really any new medications that I know of that are being developed. And I think that model of people having to go to a doctor and be prescribed something, it's probably an outdated model now and it's less and less used. And many people, if we're talking about the rest of the world, the vast majority of people don't have access to that support anyway. So I think it will be products that are direct to the smoker, directly available for the smoker to buy without seeing a doctor. I think the behavioral techniques will develop a bit more because we do need to find out more about why people smoke mm. and you know what are the motivators and triggers to really help them to stop smoking. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all for smoking, and that's something that really has been ignored quite a lot. So very little work has been done on finding out why somebody smokes to begin with mm. and therefore tailoring the support that they need. So I'd like to see that as part of the what's offered in the future. 
I think that's such an important point because I think that parameter of understanding what is the root cause can be related to so many different types of health behaviour. So when we're looking at mental health, that can be applied, like are we medicating somebody or are we actually physically uncovering why that person might be discovering symptoms of depression or anxiety or high stress. The same within our non-communicable diseases, which is our modifiable risk factors where we're dying from things type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome and we're not really uncovering the root causes and we're not looking at actually if we can change these other health behaviours we can eliminate these and I think this is fundamentally where we have kind of come to a bit of a barrier within our healthcare and especially within the UK I would say anyway is that we do need to become more personalised with that individual and look at a more of a holistic approach to actually identifying the root cause. Yes, completely agree. I think our last podcast was on personalised nutrition (laughs) and we heard a lot about personalised medicine and it's really time for personalised prevention. I love that, personalised prevention. And if you haven't listened to Dr Kosa and I's first podcast, I think, I think... I think it's in the second season. Go and have a look. It is called Personalised Nutrition and it is fascinating by looking at how kind of different apps and different methods and different models are kind of coming in to really look at our unique individual makeup to help us achieve the optimal health through personalised nutrition. So definitely go and check that one out as well. Okay, so thank you so much for coming back to record this podcast. We actually did try this a few weeks ago, virtually, and we had some technical issues. So I'm so pleased that we could do this in person, face to face. Could you please just give our listeners directions of where they can find you, your website, your Instagram, so people can connect with you directly. It's a pleasure to see you again, Sarah, on this beautiful sunny day. <laughs> so yeah, please do reach out. I am available at Dr. Kotha Hajat on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Clubhouse, not to forget Clubhouse. Clubhouse Human Behaviour Club, every Thursday. I had to whisper that in the background because Dr. Kather has an amazing audience in Clubhouse and I was very privileged to be invited on a year ago regarding that. So if you haven't joined Clubhouse, definitely do and definitely check out Kosa's handle on that because she has some really interesting talks and conversations. So lastly, just before we go and say goodbye, Kosa, I did ask you this last time, I'm not sure if you remember, but how do you live well and be well? Seeing as you're a, you know, epidemiologist in all of these areas of health, I feel like your knowledge is one that we all need. So I'm probably less healthy now because I think the last one was before lockdown, but I do love exercise. And so I do try to exercise several times a week. And my tip would be, again, one size does not fit all. So find what you enjoy so that you will continue exercising. And obviously, because of my work, I do a lot of research on nutrition and diets. And I think it's helpful for people to understand when you eat something, how does your body interact with that? What happens inside to your physiology? So if you have something very high in sugar, that's fine. But what's the impact of that kind of sugar high and then the crash afterwards? And, you know, what's the best time to have that sugar high and the crash? And so I think being aware of what you're eating a little bit. I'm vegan, but again, it's not necessary to be vegan to be healthy, but really considering how much animal products we're eating, the quantity and the quality, I think is important. And yeah, stress and looking after mood and mental well-being, very important, more important now than I think the last time 
we met. I'm still not very good at meditating or yoga, but getting there. I have actually just found a really amazing meditation app. So maybe I should share it because I've always struggled to meditate and I did do a transcendental meditation course and it was an amazing course and I loved it, but I did struggle to continue the long-term practice of it. And something that I found really difficult was was just the timing and also feeling that I had to meditate perfectly. So if anyone's listening and want a good app, um, I found one called Buddhify. And it kind of opens as a big wheel. And there's all different situations. So you can have a walking meditation. My favorite one, I'm not even sure if I could call this meditation, but it's you're sitting in bed and it's called waking up. And they're basically saying, just lay in bed under the covers. Don't feel like you have to get up yet. And I'm like, I like this meditation. <laughs> and so it's it's a very unpresumptuous, undemanding It's a very soft approach and it isn't that you have to sit up with a straight back and be focused. It really kind of fits into whatever mood you're in. And that's what I really, really like about it. So maybe that's something that the next time you come on the podcast, maybe that's one that you can try. That sounds a lot more like lying in than meditation, but I like that. Yeah, I, yoga need sleep we haven't really touched on. And I think we're, we're finding out more on the importance of sleep for our diets, for our mental well-being, for our ability to perform the next day. So, yeah, that's something I'm really looking at as well. And there are lots of new kind of apps and technology to help with that. And there's a form of yoga called Yoga Nidra that really helps. I love Yoga Nidra. If anyone has not checked that out, definitely type in Yoga Nidra into Google and YouTube. That's something I was told recently by a friend of mine, um, a dietitian friend of mine, and it's really helped me sleep. So that's a really, really good tip. And you are true in saying that sleep is the foundation. And we have a sleep expert coming on next week, actually. So it will be in this series. So do definitely check that out too. But Kosa, thank you so much for coming on to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. If you did enjoy the podcast, please do leave us a five-star review. It means a lot and it really helps spread the word. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.